Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. Today's episode is with an expert in the Controlled Environment Agriculture, or CEA, space. At the beginning of the show, our guest defines the many ways we are seeing indoor farming pop up in the industry. So when I say indoor farming, take lettuce for an example. It's field grown outside. Most people think of many different fields in California or down in Yuma, Arizona. However, it's now popping up across the U.S. in greenhouse spaces or indoor spaces that we call vertical farming. So I brought my friend Derek Eady on as I'd like to hear his opinion to just compare the two indoor versus outdoor farming methods and just some of the differences, pros and cons between the two. So Derek, if you don't mind, given your experience, share some of your insights with us. Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning, at the heart of it, both conventional farming and high-tech agriculture or CEA are very similar. Both grow amazing quality fresh produce. The large distinction is how they do it, indoor versus outdoor growing. Growing indoors in high-tech greenhouses or vertical farms, growers can use roughly 90% less water than conventional growing, while at the same time growing more produce on less acreage. It's an amazing equation, right? Combine that with being able to put these facilities almost, and I do stress almost, anywhere, you can take thousands of food miles out of the supply chain. While these high-tech ag farms are more sustainable in a lot of ways, there are still questions about energy usage and and light pollution. Energy is a huge cost and is impacting profitability. You're starting to see some of these companies that started five to 10 years ago that haven't been able to turn a profit and are shutting their doors. So time will tell if that can be solved. But in my opinion, there is absolutely a place for CEA and I'm excited to see where it goes. Today's guest is really going to blow your mind as far as where the indoor farming space is growing and going. He has more than 25 years of experience in marketing, digital strategy, digital transformation, and product design, consistently delivering on growth and profitability advisor and board member to a number of ag tech companies. He's a chief strategy and marketing officer at Amplified Ag, Michael Koziol. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, Lauren. Um, Appreciate you having me on today. And I just want to say before we get started, I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's... um, you're giving light and important coverage to a part of the part of business and part of the economy that that deserves more visibility. And with the guests you have, the subjects you take on, and it's, it, it means a lot to the people that are in the industry. So thanks so much for what you do. And I hope I can live up to the to, to the claim that I'm going to blow people's minds. <laughs> I'm just I'm excited about I'm excited about what we do at Amplified Ag. More than that, I'm excited about the promise of vertical farming and what it can offer and all indoor farming really what it can offer to the food supply and the supply chain and appreciate your interest in in that subject as well i'm fascinated by it and like i told you previously i really want to kind of break it down to the foundations here so that all of our listeners no matter where they're at whether they're up and comers into supply chain or seasoned vets in um 
fresh produce distribution and supply chain. I think we all are curious to hear and learn more because we we don't know what we don't know about this topic. I think that makes sense. It's a dynamic industry. It's an evolving industry. For people that learned about vertical farming five years ago, it's completely different today than it was. The technology is changing and transforming. The economics are changing and transforming. Our environmental conditions are changing and the need for solutions is greater. So I think always keeping fresh on this is really important. Absolutely. So why don't we start there? We've said two terms already, indoor farming, vertical farming. Define those in the different ways it shows up across the U.S. And from there, how it's taking shape at Amplified Ag. Yeah, I think let's, you know, we'll start start with the basics. I'll start with indoor farming. Um, at, at the highest level, you know, we're really talking about farming in any indoor controlled farming environment. So you may hear and your listeners may hear indoor farming and controlled environment agriculture or CEA uh, is the abbreviation used, used quite interchangeably. But really we're talking about indoor farming that is removed from some or many of the environmental factors that can be negative aspects in the farming process. And the way that it takes shape is, you know, there, there are others, but I'm going to focus on the two main indoor farming formats that we have in the U.S. and other areas of the world that are predominantly horizontal greenhouses and vertical farms. And in the greenhouse world, everybody can picture a greenhouse, whether you've seen a large industrial greenhouse or the little ones that you may have had in your backyard where you can grow flowers and some vegetables, but they range from just the basic covered farm to highly modern and tech-enabled greenhouses that are all software-enabled and include different levels of automation. But the key thing there is that they're horizontal formats. They require a bit more, not as much land as traditional farming, but more land than a condensed uh, vertical farm just because they operate in a, in a horizontal manner. Vertical farming, which is the business that I'm in and where Amplified Ag really focuses, comes in in different formats. But at its core, we grow vertically with artificial light. So we may have um, vertical vertical racks inside of a, of, a, of a chamber. And that chamber can be a building. That chamber can be uh, a, a shipping container, which I'll talk a lot about today. But the, the key thing is it grows vertically. It uses artificial light and um, and temperature control, as well as other automated inputs to make sure that everything in the farming process is happening in a synchronized way. But that also comes in different formats. Um, uh, since it's a more modern type of growing, all vertical farming is generally tech-enabled with software and integrated uh, integrated hardware and growing systems. But uh, what you'll see in the industry is you'll see large-scale warehouses, massive facilities, 50,000 square feet, 100,000 square feet. You'll see some mid-sized warehouses. And then you'll also see container farming formats, which are a configuration or which can be a configuration of networked containers or container-like modules that are each a purpose-driven growing chamber. And that's the, that's the format that Amplified Ag primarily focuses on. Um, we use decommissioned, upcycled, uh, reefer-style shipping containers, 
as the structure for our farming, our propagation, our storage, and our on-site office units for the farms. And I, it's it's interest. It's more interesting the why we do this than just what we do. So, you know, our our CEO and the founder of Amplified Ag, Don Taylor, has a really deep software and engineering background, and he shifted his focus about eight to 10 years ago into, at first was just indoor agriculture. He was looking at the category very broadly and then settled on vertical farming because there were aspects of that that really interested him as he was experimenting with different formats. But the container model really resonated with him. And as a software person and an engineering person, he found that the modular segments in, that go into the growing process were similar to the idea of a distributed architecture in software, like we have in software, we have in cloud computing. And like with technology or software, we believe that this kind of model allows for more versatility and flexibility about how you apply them, more scalability, and greater risk mitigation. And it also, as we've developed our process and really honed our manufacturing, um, we're convinced that it requires the lowest capex that is needed to establish a small to large farming operation and also has the shortest time to implementation so you can get operational and growing quickly rather than having to wait 12 to 18 months for a net new construction project to occur. You've hit okay. on the what and you've actually hit a little bit more on the why, but I want to dive deeper into the why in specific comparing indoor grown to traditional outdoor grown. So yeah. what are some of the benefits or what are some of the um, solves for in the indoor you know, CEA space? In the indoor space in general, and everybody has their different metrics. I'll speak generally, but also a little more biased towards our format, but I'll, I'll try to be true and objective, is that we use 95% less water. And you see this touted a lot in the industry. Uh, in a 90, we, we, don't, we, we don't use or require pesticides or any harmful chemicals. We have uh, no negative impact to the land or the environment or communal drinking water in the area. And from a supply chain and an economic perspective, the biggest thing that we focus on solving for, we're, we're, we're passionate and committed to being good stewards of the environment, but also we know that things have to work in terms of economics and efficiency sure. to be able to do good there. So. For, for us, the, the real upside and the game changer in this whole thing is about the, the localization and the ability to flexibly place new agricultural production all along the supply chain rather than make the supply chain work from bringing product from a handful of growing sectors or growing centers to the consuming population. So we really think that that's the going to be the answer in the future is to to localize and position more agricultural production closer to either to the people themselves or the key points of distribution. And our vision is to have um, indoor farms operating at all key distribution hubs so that we're at least getting the production as close to the trucks as possible 
so that we're reducing food miles, we're increasing quality, we're minimizing the touch points on the produce, and we're, we're moving agriculture up the value chain. Decreasing food miles, minimizing human touch. I mean, these are all, I mean, my, my light bulbs are going off left and right. I want to I want to talk about the localization and positioning of ag production. Tell me about, you know, in a, an extreme weather or wild place that you've positioned, I, I don't know, a shipping container, let's say, or just an example of that in play if you've got one. Yeah, yeah, I got, we, have, we, have, we, have, we have more than one. Uh, so Love it. It's um, yeah. I talked about the versatility of of our format and the fact that yeah, people say shipping containers are great. You can put them anywhere. You can't really put them everywhere, and you can't put anyone anywhere. But we have a lot of we have a lot of flexibility about about where they can go, the type of land that it can go on, and what are the environmental conditions of those places. So mm -hmm. our company was founded and is based in Charleston, South Carolina. And if you've been to Charleston, it's 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 a, it's a wonderful place. It's it's lovely. We've got we've got there's beaches there. If you like golf, there's golf courses. There's great restaurants. It's just it's a great history, fabulous place to be. Um, but if you've been there in June, July, and August, and even now more and more in September and into October, you know that it can be crazy hot and humid. And you also know that it's an area that is one of the key areas of the United States that's prone to severe weather conditions like, like hurricanes. Uh, that was our testing ground. So we know that we've nailed the extreme or an extreme. There are more extreme places than um, South Carolina. Um, but we've nailed the extremes in terms of hot and humid. And uh, we know that we have weather resiliency, whether it's a tropical storm or a hur hurricane type condition, which I'll say, interestingly, we, we have not implemented in the in the Caribbean yet. But um, the Caribbean is one of the key target markets and one of the biggest opportunities for vertical farming or indoor agriculture, because more than 90 percent of the food that's consumed on most Caribbean islands has to be imported and most and it is, has to be shipped in. So for them, the conditions are being hurricane proof or hurricane resilient, being able to to operate in extremely efficiently in extremely hot and humid conditions are are key factors. So that's so so we feel good and confident that we've covered off hot and humid. Um, about a year and a half ago, we had the opportunity to start to explore the other end of the spectrum. And we have a we have a, a great partner, Colin McIntosh with Outpost Agriculture, who is in Ketchikan, Alaska. And he had the vision to operate a vertical farming business inside in, in his local area. And Ketchikan is remote. It's extremely cold and frigid. I don't have the average daily temperatures, but you can imagine them. And if you, if I could show you the pictures, it's a, it's we've got our farms there that are totally covered in snow. But mm -hmm. he, he came to us, and we began planning and working together and determining what was needed to meet his supply and configuration needs, and also 
to validate that what we did could withstand the weather conditions there. So it's been it's been over a year we've implemented there, and it's it's game it's game changing for his community in Alaska, and it's also a beacon for other uh, areas or communities in in that general region because he's now growing locally and providing his community with fresh locally grown produce that would have otherwise needed to be trucked, flown, and then barged in, uh, shipped in by barge to be able to get there. And, and you know, from your experience, what that does to shelf life, what that does to the quality. And, the, you know, and you can imagine the diminished expectations that people would have of the duration of produce and the cost of produce when it has to have that much transportation. Michael, this is so interesting. I mean, I I literally have to walk the path of the the product for our clients that have locations. You know, they've got national presence, so they've got a location or two in Alaska and or in Maui, and the ocean freight versus land freight versus versus unique tax from the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, all of these components of cost are 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 very huge when you're talking, you know, outside of the continental. So. Those are extremes. Those are extremes. Think about think about Portland, Maine, and think about Miami. And if you know, and, and we have crops that are there. You know, the United States. We have crops that are only grown in places like California, Arizona, Oregon. And the time that it takes and the expense that goes into getting those products to even those. Um, I know Alaska is domestic, but um, but even those. Uh, those those markets that are in you know in, in the contiguous states sure yeah i mean plenty plenty of uh yeah i think this is just this would be such a, a fantastic um you know brilliant piece of, of future planning for the fresh produce category for them and and let's dive into that just a little bit if yeah. we can so you you talked about areas of high import being um, let's call it, call it a disruption or, um, you know, a source to create the greatest opportunity for, for this space in particular. Are there any other examples just besides um, that example that, that you can share um, that have created kind of a, a good opportunity for, for this product? Yeah. I mean, a good, another good customer, um, like another good case study. Yeah. yeah. One of the things we're really proud of, you know, maybe on a future podcast, I can tell you who it is and unpack the whole case study. But we are very proud and very excited about having a um, a customer that's an important regional regional distributor who is using our technology to enter CEA themselves. And they had previously been buyers of other CEA companies and probably will remain buyers of other CEA um, companies, but saw the opportunity to meet the market dem demand by creating their own line of product and even their own brand for a, a CEA um, line that is owned, operated, and distributed by this, by this distributor. And again, like I talked about, um, with the idea for localization and moving moving uh, agriculture up the value chain through some of these uh, newer technological opportunities, that that is a case study that um, we 
think will be much more prominent in the, in the future and a use case that is is extremely relevant. I mean, we're also, we have other things too um, that we're really proud of. The Over the last two years, the United States Department of Agriculture has selected our technology platform to power the agricultural research services um, uh, in-depth study and analysis of um, indoor farming. And it's, it's, I would say it's in, in the United States, it's definitely the most innovative and advanced um, uh, crop science study that's going on and probably the top, if not the top two or three around the world. I love bringing the source um, closer to the point of distribution. So this this own brand or line, CEA line for a distributor is a very fascinating. I used to work at the distributor level as a sales rep go in and out of chef's restaurants all day long. And number one, they want local. Number two, from a national uh, you know, management perspective, a lot of clients want to understand more about how to localize the supply chain you know, at a national level. I mean, that takes a lot of different tentacles um, when you've got you know, locations in, in every different state. A lot of that you see with retail too. How can they find a line that's unique for, for each right. region or area that it's in? I mean, it's, 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 this is huge for retail. Um, talk to me more about the containers and, and in specific the tech, because I, and probably others hear the word technology and, you know, there's a lot of concerns with cybersecurity and things turning off and on at random times. And if you've got live product growing, there's a lot of investment in that, you know, more specifically, what is the tech that's involved? What is, what is it replacing? Um, and just kind of how the container works. Yeah, I think, um, I've been, I'll explain. Explain it the way that the way that we do it, because I believe that all those concerns are are real concerns. Um, enterprise security, no matter where you have connectivity, needs to be considered, and is something that, uh, that that we've spent a lot of time making sure that that we have covered. So I think the fact that you bring that up right away is good, because that's usually the last point that a lot of people people think about. They think more about the the farm operating system. They think more about the, the the growing units and how the process works. But we really, and especially in today's world, we have to think about security and we have to think about uh, all types of risk mitigation. So the way that the way that we the way that we've built our company is to provide a fully integrated and turnkey solution to people, so that you know cliche, I'll call it one-stop shopping for all the different technological needs that you will you will require to implement and operate an indoor farming operation. So if you think about it, if you go if you go a different route, and the reason the turnkey is important because if you go a different route and you think about all the different things that are required, you're going to look at how you construct a building or a facility. You're going to have to find and evaluate software. Then you're going to have to make sure that that software can work with all the different sensors that might be out there. And then you have to make sure that it it all jives together with the lighting, with the fertigation system. Really, everything inside it, except for the plants themselves, is technology controlled. And the whole thing is tech enabled. So 
what we what we've done and what we've proven and a real part of the value proposition for people that work with us or are are looking to implement something is that we've we've created something that's fully integrated. You don't have to worry about integration risk. Will this software work with those sensors? Will that control system work with this software or will the fertigation? So it takes a lot of time, a lot of hassle and a lot of tech uncertainty out of it. But we have software that is farm management software that is full seed to sale. So it not only does it manage all the controls and the reporting and the monitoring of what's going on in the farms um, and creates alerts if something happens. And, you know, if, uh, if, if, if one of the, if one of the signals is, is off or one of the environmentals is out of range, uh, you get an alert and you can control it remotely. Um, but we also, the software is more broad than that. It's, it was actually started as a full supply chain platform. So it offers seed to sale management and traceability so that we could trace a skew on a retail shelf back to a seed lot and the exact position where that was grown in the vertical farm. And, you know, the, the, there are, you know, few, if any, uh, recall incidences in the, in the vertical farming space, but you, you know, you know, from the industry that, you know, traceability is really important and to be able to do it at that level is really, is really valuable. So we've also, in it, beyond the software, we've also created our, our own control system for the vertical farm. And this is really the, is really the, the brain of the farm and it works directly with the software. It manages, it, it manages all the sensors throughout all the different controls. Um, we, we, you know, we've developed specific lighting for the vertical farms. We have uh, developed our own fertigation model. And really, soup to nuts, all the tech has been designed and developed to work consistently and fully integrated with all the other technology that exists. Going back to your point about you know technology is you know can be can be scary, can be intimidating. Um, it can and it should be scrutinized intensively because that's really the driver of the business here. And that's the advantage here. Our focus has really been to take the scare factor out of it and the uncertainty out of it and be able to deliver a whole product that comes day one fully integrated and doesn't have any concerns about, will this work with that? And the, you know, owing to Don Taylor's background in enterprise software, one of the things he solved for first was enterprise scale distributed use and and security because we believe that the future of this business is going to be more large scale infrastructure and um enterprise enterprise level indoor farms okay and i and i almost fear getting too you know pigeonholed into one area but my mind's kind of going in a couple different directions with questions so when it arrives on day 1 to a certain client um you know, what part in the growing process is it in? Is it very early on? Where specifically is it just seed? This is what's really cool is that because of the way that they're operated, we can deliver them seeded and with propagation begun. So okay. 
it's, you know, day, day one on the farm could be day 15, day 20, day 30 into a growth cycle. Got it. And that's, um, to me, that's part of what's mind blowing here is that it's, you start out ahead of the game. And if I've got, I'm going to say 700 salad restaurants across the Southeast, and I've got yep. eight or nine hubs or commissaries that are delivering direct into them, right? We've got a ton yeah. of different models in, in the restaurant industry. It's yep. you know, through Broadline, through distributor, and then through commissary, and they do direct. So if yep. we put one of those next to one of the commissaries or all, who is harvesting the product, yep. packing it, and making it ready for ship? In any examples that you've seen so far, what you guys would recommend? Yeah. So, and I think the decision about where you place them is, has to work with what's your supply chain. So if doing it by the commissary makes sense, that's great. If doing it at uh, distribution centers makes sense, that's, that's great too. Um, but I, I, I like the, I like the thought that goes into the commissary because really there you're even removing that, that leg, but you have to think about where does the scale belong? Um, mm. But so who's doing it? This is one of the things that one of the upfront things that we work on very closely with our our clients, and it's the the labor the labor modeling, and and it varies. It could be it, it varies based on the the scale of the operation, the capacity, and then what are the end markets. So if the end market is retail, you have to factor in much more, um, you know, uh, packaging. If the end market is uh, wholesale food service and going straight into the commissary, you'll focus on different things. And and again, it depends on that. There there is no one size fits all because we can we can adjust to different capacity needs. A, a farm could have as few as three people operating, or it could have eight to twelve, or it could have multiples of that depending on what the scale is. Um, when you're on the smaller side. We typically see hybridization of roles. So you might have a farm manager that's also an active farmer mm. and somebody that's a farmer that gets trained and certified on food safety and is dealing with food safety at that location as well. And then um, maintenance and support can be done on a variable basis, but you'd have a, a smaller, tighter team for a smaller operation. And then you would add in pack depending on what you needed needed there. As you get bigger, it becomes more important to have discrete roles and discrete functions. So farm manager really becomes a farm manager. Uh, food safety is 100% food safety working across all the different parts of the farm. Uh, farming is, is, a, is, is an efficient and an ever increasingly efficient um, process because we're working on making it more efficient. More and more automation becomes available into the process that um, allows an operator to harvest more with less less labor required, um, which is which is an important aspect of the the unit economics here. So it's it's all very variable, but the real key is to do the planning up front and make sure that that fits into your business model and that it works with your economics, because you may decide that, okay, the scale we need at each one of those commissaries is less than we would need at, um, even though it's closer to the absolute point, but if we backed it up a bit to the distribution sure. center, 
we would, um, you know, we would go three X, five X on the capacity and we'd have a labor efficiency there. Sure. I imagine just people bringing their supply chain model to you, you guys probably have the best expertise to, to make those recommendations for implementation. I think it's collaborative and we partner and we look at what is the, you know, where's the greatest efficiency, but the, the key is, and whether it's, whether it's about labor or capacity, any, anything, we spend a lot of time doing the, 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 the business modeling with our customers up front so that before they even make the decision or execute on the decision, uh, they, they know what the business looks like and they know what their targets can be and what they expect. What would you say is the biggest challenge you're facing in, in your business right now and, and how are you tackling it? I feel like there's a lot in a, in a good way, not, um, you know, not, not in a, oh my God, we have a challenge type of way, but if I think across the whole organization, everybody's challenging themselves for continuous improvement. I'll get to what I think the one might be, but, um, you know, our, our engineers, you know, for example, are really focused on, on, on energy reduction. And they're, you know, they, you know, they're they're really motivated by that as one of the key challenges. Uh, our horticulture and farming team are really focused on yield optimization, and you know, on both of these, on the on the horticulture, you know, we're we're growing an average plant that's more than two x what we were growing three years ago, but we're not stopping. We're not going to rest on those laurels. We see greater energy efficiency in our, our units than we did two years ago. But the beautiful thing about technology is that there's always room for, for continuous improvement. So like every one of our functions has a, a key challenge or a couple of key challenges that they're working on because we push ourselves. We want this to be one of the top areas in the future food supply. So, you know, we have our mission and our, you know, part of our mission means that we want to enable the future infrastructure of, of the industry. So we need to nail it. And that's what keeps us up at night in a good way. I think the biggest challenge is some about perception. There's yeah. been some, you know, there's been some heavy negative news in the industry recently about some some big players, some big, bold players that have fallen on tougher times. You know, one shut down, one uh, announced bankruptcy a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, one, the news has been that they're headed into bankruptcy. You know, we know all these companies have a ton of respect for, for what they do and the role that they play, but it casts a bit of, of a cloud. Um, and, and I think a bit of... Uh, misconceptions about the industry uh, by what people read. And so the, the challenge that, that, that we have with that is, is really being clear and explaining to people in one situation, it might've been about execution. In one situation, it might've been about financing and that they took on too much debt in, too early in their life cycle to be able to handle that. And that's the function of the bankruptcy. And for another was, you know, they had the right idea, but they chose to centralize everything rather than diversify it. So they were still nailed with huge um, trucking and transportation costs, even though they were more local, they were still 
remote enough that that weighed heavily into their business. So, I, you know, we spend a lot of time. We're, we're try to be very thoughtful, and we're always honest about where we see the business uh, and and trying. And when it comes up, we explain to people, look, it's it's not an indictment of vertical farming or indoor farming because some of them were uh, greenhouse businesses too. Had more to do about execution. Had more to do about their capitalization and try to distinguish between what is and isn't endemic in the industry. The first challenges are more fun because they're about uh, innovation and thinking and pushing and growing bigger plants and uh, reducing the cost of the inputs is, you, there we're really just talking about sustainability of a model. That's what gets us excited. And the other stuff you deal with because you need, people need to have a clear view of what the future of the industry looks like. Sure. I'd say another, I mean, a massive challenge is education, right? You guys are are competing against, in some ways, you know, field outdoor farming that's been around for centuries. Yeah. And at, the perception is that it's, you know, 2x, 3x as much. However, you have to take them through the process. You know, when you talk about yield and shelf life, these are costs. And, um, yep. you know, putting products side by side is really the best way to exercise the value and the stretch that you're getting out of that case. But again, as we see so many initiatives coming forward for localization, and I mean, that's the ask we get, can you make 5% of my fresh produce supply chain local from local sources mm -hmm. through 2023? And we have to hit that target in whatever way we feel we can achieve it. Um, so, you know, and, and another major ask is just getting them out of California. How can you diversify my growing regions for lettuce products so that yeah. in INSV or during these extreme weather situations, we're not just gapping? Um, you know, we've we've got to show them the the areas that we have to support that. So you guys continue to be, gosh, but more so, there's so many examples that I'm learning from just this conversation alone of of, you know, the benefits and, and ideal, you know, use cases. So. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to help in that, in that regard. I want to know more about little Michael before we wrap kind of your career in general. I mean, you've been global CEO at huge, a leading digital transformation and product design firm. You certainly have a tech um, knack and background. Um, I understand you got your MBA in finance did you always know that you wanted to be in in this field? I had no clue. It was it was uh, it was it was completely unexpected. Uh, started a few years ago, and and it's been it's been delightful. I I spent my whole career in in digital digital transformation, so working in a whole bunch of different categories from industrials to consumer products to banking and finance to um, you know some of the the largest technology companies that are out there and always helping people to figure out how to use technology, how to use media, how to use uh, solutions to change how they do business or change how they interact with customers. A few years ago, I got introduced and exposed to someone in precision agriculture. And, it, you know, candidly, I was a little intimidated. I didn't know much about agriculture and to learn learn a lot which I, I like doing um but I quickly realized that oh this is um 
this is digital transformation. We're talking about data. We're talking about technology. We're talking about user adoption. And the outcomes just happen to be some of the most important outcomes that, that we can. So the way I look at it is it's a different sector than I had worked in for the first 20 some years of my career, but it's not, it's not a total tangent because what I feel like we're doing here is we're providing digital transformation for the food supply, which I think could be the greatest mission that exists for, for anybody around the world. I love it. I, I love understanding kind of the things that you learned early on that become very relevant to what you're doing today and or just a, a perfect marriage of the two. So absolutely no greater mission. I agree. How about what you do for fun? I work a lot and I like to work, but um, I'm a cyclist, I'm a paddle boarder. Okay. Uh, I like to spend time with my family. I binge a lot of television um, and I and I, and I cook. So I, um, so having, having the access to fresh produce and, uh, the sustainability of cost-effective fresh produce is, re is really important to me on that dimension. So okay. daily habit that keeps you grounded. I have to have my coffee or I'm a mess, but, um, <laughs> coffee reading, I think the thing that keeps me grounded is a, is a habit is that I, I write, um, I write everything. I write a lot. I write everything down. I have a, have a kind of a visual memory. So, the, you know, when, when I, when I write something or annotate something, I, I, I never forget it. And I've got, um, I have about 25 years of these black notebooks, we can, these black notebooks that are, um, you know, that basically either outline or detail everything. And that's, that's, that's been my, you know, from more from work, I don't journal personally, but I keep notes of everything and I annotate everything. And that's, that's probably the, the grounding thing that and always learning and trying to read as much as I can. I'm a writer too. And I've got way too many totes of notebooks in our garage. I just moved and it's been brought to my attention. I have boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And then when I, but I always love grabbing one and reading about, oh, 1999 or 2006. This is what I was doing on that day, or this is who I talked to. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, written history. Yeah, it it always baffles me at how quickly you can forget. I mean, and I'm trying to do it as a mother too with my my kids' memories. I mean, I had a, a very funny experience happen yesterday. I'm like, if I don't write this down, I will forget it, and it would be a shame. I mean, oh, that's it's just that's something... great. That's really great that you do that because it goes fast. Yeah, it does go fast. Okay, so how about to the next generation of supply chain or procurement individuals, those that come into the industry in any fashion? You know, what is your best secret that you're willing to share? One of a secret, but my advice is to think differently and be bold about what your value chain looks like. And I, we have conversations with people almost in the same sentence where they're exclaiming, oh, we're asset light. We won't invest in farms or anything that's going to require heavy capex like that. They're also um, agonizing about supply issues or supply shock 
or they can't find supply or their customers want CEA and there's not enough CEA supply there. And I think that the asset light is more of an excuse than a strategy and that people need to real if if they want consistency of supply if they want quality of supply and most importantly if they want to meet consumer demand and consumer expectations they need to really rethink where production fits and my bias and my my belief is that more people higher in the value chain where they be distribution food service and retail need to enter the space not to eliminate what they get from field ground because there's no way in any scenario that indoor farming can ever replace or displace traditional agriculture but what we need is for it to augment traditional agriculture and this is an opportunity for these players that sit higher in the value chain to be bold change the game and be in control of at least some of their supply. How about mentors? Do you have a mentor and in what way? I don't. And I, I well, I've never, I mean, I, I've gotten mentorship from people. I don't, I don't think I, I've never really had the labeled person. This is my mentor. I've had the benefit of getting to work with some, some, some really great people in my career that have inspired me, taught me. So, you know, save my butt a few times, <laughs> um, but, but not really mentor. I, I look for, I, I, I ask a lot of questions. I talk to a lot of people. I, I always look for strategies and success that, um, you know, that people have had that I can apply. And I don't think I've ever really had a mentor. Family values are really important to me. My, um, my, my grandparents were, you know, all, you know, significant people in my life. So I've you know, taken a lot of advice and taken a lot of uh, inspiration for, you know, what they went through to allow me to get to, to where I am. A hundred mentors. I love it. Yeah. Maybe how about that. a, how about a staple produce item for a burger? This has been one of my favorite questions to ask and Shape. shocked at how similar the answer is. Do you like, <laughs> what's my topping? Like that? If you, I mean, if you think about a burger, what is the the produce item? You, it just is okay. not the same it. without. Got it. So I stopped eating meat a bunch of years ago, so it was called an impossible burger or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, I, I'm the old school on that, like the old Whopper commercials. Give me, um, give me lettuce and tomato and a bunch of mustard and ketchup, and I'm really happy with that. I've tried with all the guacamole and jalapenos and stuff like that. And I think that's better for a taco, but okay. a, a leaf of lettuce, a nice red tomato slice and a ton of mustard and ketchup. And I'm happy. Michael, this conversation has been even more than what I expected. You are a wealth of information and just, I'm so excited for people to find you and I want to make sure they can do so. So where where do people get a hold of you? Um, and, and I'd love to include it in the show notes. I'm on the Amplified Ag website. So uh, AmplifiedAgInc.com. Uh, I have, uh, you know, we can, I can get you my Twitter handle and uh, Instagram and all that or, or LinkedIn. Um, and it's, uh, you, know, you can just you know, find me on LinkedIn too. 
I'd love to hear from people. I'd love to chat about this stuff um, and see what's on people's minds. Thank you, Michael. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you, those that have been listening. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about this podcast. Again, been a great conversation. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a great day. And that wraps up another episode. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve.